You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. And with me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you feeling this morning, Michael? Pretty good, David. How are you? Uh, Decent. Can't complain and shouldn't anyway. Also with us is our illustrious colleague, Nathan Gilmore, an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you, Nathan? I am doing pretty well. I'm tired, but uh, that might make me say some regrettable things that will be entertaining for the listeners. All right. Well, let's let's carry on then. Uh, <laughs> well, but before we get to our topic, which is a, a, a little topic, um, a little topic about a little book. What's going on in uh, the Christian Humanist Radio Network that's worth uh, pointing out? Many things. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, the first episode of Chris Geertz's The Pietist Schoolman should have gone up. Awesome. Uh, well, technically the zeroth episode. The first episode will be coming out two days after <laughs> this podcast. But Yes, at, at, at the Christian Humanist Radio Network, we don't believe in you know straightforward numbering systems. <laughs> so we're, we're very excited about that yeah, yeah so someone needs to start a spinoff show that uses like you know base eight or something this is also i believe i'm trying to get the timing right I, I don't think it's a surprise that we record this a week the week before it goes up but i think the week this goes up is the first week we've had five podcasts there's a podcast monday through friday yes oh, wow. yes one episode every day <laughs> so stay on top of it or else the episodes and, will pile up. And it will culminate on Friday with an episode of a Christian feminist podcast on my 38th birthday. So I think I think that's significant. Aw, yay. Actually, do you know that episode is going to be about you, Nathan Gilmore? It is not. No, it's Quit. not. I was hoping you'd say <laughs> really so I could say no, not really. <laughs> It'd be a special uh, birthday episode. I, I've known you too long, Farmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, another uh, related uh, related announcement, not necessarily about a, a podcast, new or old, but about uh, podcasters. Uh, one of our Book of Nature colleagues, uh, Dan Dawson, uh, had uh, something pretty cool recently happen in his uh, in his life. Uh, he and his wife, Robin, were offered uh, positions at uh, Purdue, and they, they, they accepted. So he's, he's, uh, he's going to be a professor too, guys. I think we need to sit on that for a minute because not only is he now the highest, in terms of like school ranking, the highest member of our little network, uh, also he, he and his wife got dual tenure-track positions at Purdue. 
Which, if that doesn't make uh, two academic households jealous, I don't know what will. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's it's true. It's true, Dan. We're ha- we're happy for you, but but we're also we're also really kind of envious, which is not good for our soul. Congratulations, Dan. <laughs> yes, congratulations. Also, where, where, up. where they're working is had kind of a neat name. It was like the Earth and space and something. I, I, it, it, it looked. It sounded made up. <laughs> well, uh, you know, scientists. Earth and atmospheric and planetary sciences department, which it makes me think of like movie scientists who who are experts in like everything. So in this case, they're just kind of rolling up, you know, the Earth, the atmosphere, and planets, just all kind of in one department. That's it's pretty. It's a pretty big department. The Department of Aristotle. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say maybe they're operating on a geocentric universe model. <laughs> we should ask him about that. All right. Well, we should probably be getting on to our topic because uh, we got places to go and people to teach. Uh, this morning we are looking at a little book, uh, Helmut Thielica's Little Exercise for Young Theologians, uh, which... I don't have exactly the date on this book, but it's it's been around for a while. Uh, I'll pitch that one to you, Nathan. Uh, but before we get into talking about the content of it, I reckon we ought to say something about the author. So, Nathan, mm-hmm. tee this one up. Who is Helmut Tulica, and why should we listen to him? Well, first of all, to to answer the previous question, this is a 1959 essay that gets translated into English in 1962. Uh, It's frequently reprinted because it's a really great uh, little essay for a first-semester seminary student in the U.S. But Helmut Thielicke himself is a German theologian. Uh, He comes of age in early 20th century Germany and really gets in trouble early in his academic career because he's part of the Confessing Church in Germany. Uh, Listeners might be familiar with that, with Karl Barth's involvement with it. Michael might talk here in a bit about uh, Tielica's relationship with Barth, but Tielica was one of those who stood behind a declaration that the Church has only one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that all nations, not merely the blood and soil of Germany, uh, stand as God's people in the world. For that reason, he was refused a, a professorship in the 1930s in Germany, uh, went into the pastorate, uh, and served the church there in Germany during that very dark time in their history. Eventually did return to the academy, uh, where he wrote just a ton of lengthy and important books. Uh, and among those, uh, really as a as an introductory lecture to systematic theology, he wrote this little essay, uh, which, you know, is the only Telica that I've read. So I, I'm pretty sure that speaks badly of me, not badly of Telica. But uh, point is that, you know, he is a systematic theologian. He writes on ethics and metaphysics and all those good sorts of things that you'd expect a German theology professor to write about. Uh, and, you know, frankly, unlike a lot of his contemporaries who were doing very important theological work in Germany at the time, uh, he had the clarity of sight and the courage of conviction to stand against the National Socialist regime. So that is worth noting. Now, 
Michael, before we started recording, you mentioned that, you know, he had a tense relationship with Carl Bart. Since you are our Bart man, uh, won't you talk about that for a moment? He, um, his, his problem from what I read, you know, this is definitely the only Thelica I've read. I hadn't heard of it until David suggested this episode. Uh, so, you know, take this with a grain of salt, but his problem with Bart <laughs> seemed to be Bart's dismissal of, uh, natural theology of, of, of mm-hmm. so not a, not an uncommon thing to disagree with Bart about. Right. But if he was a member of the confessing church, he must've had some respect for, for Bart because, uh, he, he, he was a, of course a giant in that, in that movement. Right. But it's worth noting that, I mean, not every member of the confessing church was a Bardian. Right, no, no. Right. Yeah. Bart, Bart's, Bart's neo-orthodoxy was seen as, as, um, too conservative for a lot of German theologians at the time, but but I mean, re- really, I like to think of the Confessing Church as a political movement rather than a, an explicitly theological one. It's just a political right, movement right. that says theology is more important than politics. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, that's the uh, that's the one that we're going to be listening to. Whose whose warnings we shall heed in this episode, dear listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and given that it sounds like a lot of Germans ought to have heeded his warnings when, you know, particular gentleman with a small mustache took power, um, then then maybe we should, too. Um, I'll pitch this one at you, Michael. Uh, Tilica says that his book is meant to counter, and this is his quote, a great danger, quote, to the soul of the theological student. So, you know, immediately we are on high alert. What is this illness, and have you witnessed outbreaks of it? Well, I, I do not um, have that much contact with first-year seminarians, so <laughs> I'm not going to talk about that in particular. I'll let Nathan, who was at one point a first-year seminarian, and probably insufferable. Uh, I'll let, you I'll have let him. no idea. <laughs> no, I, I have some idea. <laughs> um I'm going to suggest that the problem he's diagnosing is a universal problem with education rather than something okay. lim- limited to theology. Uh, mm-hmm. So sophomore, the, the, the term means wise fool. And it, it means wise fool because sophomore year is when you have learned enough to be dangerous, when you have learned enough to <laughs> go back home and attempt to impress everybody you knew with the knowledge that has been imparted to you. But the problem of course is you know almost nothing. You're mm-hmm. you're you're only you're only a little bit smarter than a uh, a senior in high school or I should smarter is, is not the right word because intelligence has to do with how much you're capable of learning. Um you only know a little bit more than a senior in high school, and yet you think of yourself as this fount of wisdom. So a classic example, uh, you, you take your first general psychology course, and you go home for fall break, and all of a sudden uh, you believe yourself qualified to diagnose everybody's mental disorders. <laughs> and we have all known this person. We have, I suspect, all been this person, maybe not with general psychology, although that's a popular example. Mm-hmm. I myself was this way when I first started reading philosophy. I remember getting in a very long discussion with my long-suffering father about uh, the limits of epistemology 
in, in which I declared boldly that there was no way to know anything for sure, and uh, it was uh, it's, it, not not the not the uh, not the the thing in my life I'm most proud of. And and I was a that was a that was grad school, so uh, I was not a sophomore, but had uh, I, I, I should have known better is what I'm saying. So the, the 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 thing he's diagnosing here is a tendency among the educated to think like they are feel, feel like with their education they have been elevated above uh the the folks back home let's say and it is especially pernicious among theology because presumably most people i suspect go to seminary in order to serve those people back home as pastors mm-hmm. or what have you clergymen and so if if you if you go and get full of your own knowledge you're not going to be much good in serving them mhm but again, I think it's a I think it's a more universal problem than that. I mean, we teach sophomores; we know what it's like, right? Part of <laughs> part of our job is to show them they're not as bright as they think they are. You have to shut you have to shut those students down sometimes, right? Am I mm-hmm. the only one who does that? Oh no, 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 not by any means. <laughs> and I, I, hope, mean, I, I hope you take the perverse joy in doing it that I take. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's interesting because you know I do teach a fair number of ministry majors, which is, you know, in the in the traditions that, you know, tend to send their young ministry majors to Emmanuel College, you know, that tends to be their seminary, right? Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot of folks go on to graduate study. So, um, you know, similar sort of thing going on here. And one of the interesting things that I see here, David, is that Tilika is dealing not necessarily with an isolated psychological phenomenon, but something that is inherently bound up with relationships right so mm-hmm. it is a it, it's a transformation of the relationship between the young i'm, I'm going to say seminarian because that's what i think of when i pick up this book as myself as a first year seminarian but that relationship between the young seminarian and the church right mm-hmm. so i mean you come back and you know you've got this notion that because you have encountered ideas that you've never encountered before that all the people that you left when you went to seminary must also have no idea about this thing. And he says that churches have a rightful concern about this because it really can put the young seminarian in a place of arrogance, superiority, pride, uh, so that it's not even primarily the content of the ideas that poses the danger so much as you know the disposition of the seminarian to the people in the pews. Mm. Well, it's it's bound up in the title of that third chapter, Unhappy Experience with a Theologian's Homecoming. Yes, yes. Right? <laughs> and, and the weirdest part is in German, that's just one word. <laughs> is that true? No. No, okay. no not really. <laughs> okay, okay. Sick. See, I didn't, Although you, I, ha- you I, had I, to ask, though. <laughs> I did have to ask because German, right? Am I right, German? Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I'd, I, I'd say that you guys are you guys are pretty much on the ball. And one of the reasons why uh, why I thought this would be a good one to pick up is that it it does feel like it has a much wider applicability. Which um, I'm, I'm happy I'm not I'm not the only one who's thinking that at the outset. Though though at least in in, in my experience uh, as being one of these insufferable people. Um, is that often 
there is a certain, not necessarily precise content that it's associated with, but certainly a shape to it that, that it, at least in, in my, uh, in my insufferable, you know, sophomoricness, um, frequently it took the form of rash denials, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, of sort of wandering in and saying, well, you know, this has nothing to do with that. This is, you know, um, you know, what you just preached out of that text is not in there at all. Or, you know, right, Christianity right. has nothing to do with what just went on or, you know, that, that's, that seemed to be the form that it, that it frequently took was, was rash denial. <laughs> well, there is a, there is a specifically theological, um, part of this diagnosis though and I'll, I'll turn to you to uh, for that Nathan um, probably my favorite twist in this book is that Tilika actually diagnoses these six these sick young theologians with um, theological puberty mm-hmm. right it's, it's not so much a plague as it is a stage um, which would have worked even better if those had rhyme anyway <laughs> so what are the traits or I mean Tilika actually uses the word pathology of yeah. theological puberty. Well, a couple of things uh, immediately come to mind. First of all, you know, you think of the experience of puberty as, you know, your body outstrips your experience, right? So your arms and your legs suddenly get bigger than you're used to having. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the, the adolescent, at least if your adolescence was like mine, involves a lot of stumbling over one's own appendages it involves, you know, a, a loss of coordination, um, you know, all those sorts of things that make the te- teenage years such a terror for so many of us. Um, and Tilika brings us into, you know, the realm of theological learning by saying that in the same way, a young seminarian develops a vocabulary and a uh, a repertoire of concepts that spiritually the person hasn't grown into yet. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that, you know, the first time that the seminarian, you know, runs into someone who wants to push back and say, okay, you know, I'm not sure that that has any merit. Um, and I just want to read this passage because it's so wonderful. Um, (laughs) it's on page 13, the beginning of chapter five. Now you should see how the young theological prose feel summoned to the lists with lances lowered and at a rattling gallop, with their lips painfully locked, hardly repressing a howl of triumph, they pounce upon him. Then the technical terms fly around the un- uninitiated ears of the unhappy layman. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I mean, you know, e- even if I didn't have my own memories of being this person, uh, you know, like you all have said, I mean, what I have seen, especially because I'm the faculty sponsor for a, you know, a philosophy-related club here at Emanuel, I I, I found that one of my big jobs is to try to pull the leash of my young students who are tempted to do this to the younger students. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, like Michael was saying earlier, uh, you get to the point where you've got a, a small perceived advantage and I want I want to make sure both of those modifiers get in there. <laughs> uh, you, you perceive it as a very large advantage. Oh yeah 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 yeah. And you know the, the immediate <laughs> temptation is to is to crush your enemies 
and see them driven before you. Uh, you know, my, my favorite my favorite thing is when these these students try to do it to me. Oh, sure, sure. That's that's also good fun because I have more than a perceived advantage. I mean, I you know, <laughs> let me. I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I, I do know more than a 19 year old sophomore. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I've got the wrong job. <laughs> well, that's true. Right. So, in other words, I mean, you know, it becomes a a sort of well, I mean, what Socrates called would call an heuristic game, right? Uh, the aim is not to bring forth greater understanding on the part of all involved, but to win a battle. Well, and one thing Thilica points out is you don't even win the battle. The other person is just tired. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they just yeah. think you're a jerk and don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the, the kind of winning that often happens on the Internet. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the internet is where people go when they don't grow out of theological puberty. Yeah. Says the podcast host. (laughs) 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 He's got some really good lines in these chapters. I'm looking for the one I love about the country voice too big for his britches. Oh well, it's it's the opposite. He's he has been fitted like a country boy with breeches that are too big for him. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he is too big for his britches, but his his britches are also too big for him. Like a country boy, though. That's the <laughs> that's the best part of that. Yeah, yeah. That he must grow up in the same way that one who is confirmed must also still grow into the long trousers of the catechism. <laughs> Meanwhile, they hang loosely around his body, and this ludicrous sight, of course, is not beautiful. Well, and I mean, yeah, that that. Analogy really gets at the heart of this spiritual puberty, right? Because because what you assume in learning, you know, point one percent of church history or theological history, what you assume is you are now at the peak of Christian history, mm-hmm. and that all these poor benighted souls who who lived uh, before Tillich or Bard or whoever it is you're reading who has filled you with this hot air. Uh, mm-hmm. They couldn't possibly have really known anything, and oh, but I, you know, I, I have come along at the end of history to show everybody the way. Mm-hmm. And, and part of this, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and you know point a finger back at myself. Part of this comes from some really questionable pedagogy, because I mean, I, I don't know about you two, but I mean, I remember being in certain classes where you know the. If it was never said in these terms, at the very least, the uh, cultural assumption is everything you've been taught is completely wrong, and I'm going to set you right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why the the English major version of this is critical theory. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> critical critical theory is what it, when when you learn when you have your first literary theory class, you are apt to go back to naive readers and you know push them down the stairs and, and make <laughs> right, fun of right. book clubs and all, all this stuff. And, and, and when I get like that, as I do, I, mm-hmm. I like to think of Lionel Trilling's essay uh, on the teaching of modern literature, which one of these yeah. days I suspect will do uh, maybe one day mm-hmm. when Anderson is subbing for one of you two. 
Right. Uh, since he, <laughs> that, that is a fun guy. essay, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, and what he says in that essay is modern literature is this thing you're supposed to encounter that's supposed to act the, ask these deep questions of, of your soul. And, and what ends up happening when you teach it is that the students, instead of having that encounter, uh, just kind of pick the pick the uh, pick the thing apart. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that's what they're they're trained to do, and so the, his his line is something like, uh, "They have looked into the abyss, and the abyss has looked back and said, i 'I'm interesting, aren't I?'" <laughs> and, and, and that's that's what I thought of as I was reading this, because what what you're really talking about here is a naive reading, uh, this kind of uh, practical faith of the the churchman versus mm-hmm. a, a educated reading. The uh, the young theologian and the latter just kind of stomping over the former, and not recognizing that it too has its merits. Right, right. And I mean, it reminds me of the opening section of uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, where he says that the 20th century educator, and I don't think this has changed in the 21st, is not so much to clear underbrush as it is to water a desert. You know, it, it, it's not as if, you know, we're encountering students who are just bubbling over with naive idealism. Most of them are sort of, well, I mean, sophomores, like Michael said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and uh, the, which is which is why I brought up the point earlier about denials is that oh, so, yeah, often, yeah. so often it takes that very negative form. They don't turn into, well, not always do they turn into kind of zealots for some kind of positive assertion so much as, Everything I've been taught is wrong and must be burned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, I also like his comment about uh, not letting, uh, uh, d- during the period when the voice is changing, we do not sing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And during this formative period in the life of the theological student, he does not preach. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, my seminary, yeah. and I mean, they, they they were taking up arms against the sea when they suggested this, but they always told us, don't get a church job during your first year of seminary. Yeah. Now, fact of the matter is, I mean, you know. A lot of them already had them. Well, no, 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 no. When they traveled there, I mean, 80% of them said, okay, do I want to get a youth ministry or do I want to work at a gas station? Well, which one do you think they're going to pick? You know, uh, yeah. you know I, I, I was the schmuck who worked at a gas station, but in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I did. But even working at the gas station, you managed to be insufferable to people of naive faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just imagine how much worse it could have turned out. <laughs> they would people people would just come in, and you would just start uh, throwing German theological words at them. <laughs> All I wanted to do was buy a pack of cigarettes. No, well, what's the kerygma of that decision? No, I, I really was uh, the person who would have my copy of the Stanley Fish reader on the counter next to the cash register at the gas station. I'm uh, not even making that up. <laughs> that's really, really funny. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like I needed to I, I need to get uncomfortably personal at this point because I was feeling it as I was reading this chunk of the essay. And that's, uh, uh, well... I, I identify in you know many important ways as uh, reformed in the magisterial and Swiss way, um, and it's often said that uh, 
newcomers to Calvinism, uh, in, in Reformed circles they say this, it's often said that newcomers to Calvinism are in what they call the cage stage, um, which is a phase when they really need to be prevented from talking to other people about Calvinism, just for, for their good, <laughs> and, and everyone else is good. Um, and... I, I don't know if I don't know if you ever had this, Michael, but I I, I daggum no idea that I needed to be put in a chain with a shock collar and all the rest of it. Do Calvinists just have the worst theological puberty of all, or do other traditions have an analogous cage stage? I am hesitant to say Calvinists have the worst, although theirs is certainly bad. <laughs> uh, and and it, it's something that I don't think every faith tradition has. I it, you know I don't I don't see Methodists, for example, as as having that. Calvinists have it because it's such a theologically focused mm-hmm. uh, exercise, such a theologically focused tradition. It's it's so much about. Uh, the the exegesis of the Bible and these systematic theologies and and so it makes sense because there's so much to learn that once you start learning it you get high on learning it and you you learn the wrong lesson from the amount of amount of theology there is in Calvinism instead of learning oh you know this is bigger than me and hard for me to understand <laughs> you you learn you learn the lesson oh uh, I, I have learned again point one percent of this so. Clearly, I'm smarter than all the non-Calvinists out there. I contain mm. multitudes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> of uh, propositions. <laughs> I will make a case, and and this is this is with all due respect to our listeners of this of this faith tradition. I will make a case that the Eastern Orthodox convert is even more cagey <laughs> than the the Calvinist convert, and I think I can say that because I I was very nearly an Eastern Orthodox convert, and I was very aggravating about it. Uh, because because that denomina- denomination is the wrong term, I know. If, if we have any Eastern Orthodox listeners, they were getting ready to write the letter. Uh, because that because the tradition is so different from the evangelicalism that many of its converts convert from, I think, I, understandably, there's this excitement that goes along with it, and you want to demonstrate how wrong everybody you've left behind is. Uh, so it's both of these are understandable impulses, but cage stage is about the right term. It's it's just you know study this long enough to where you have some humility in the face of it, and mm-hmm. then then let's talk. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, I, th- I think that the phenomenon that Michael was describing, I mean, applies pretty nicely to a lot of converts within Christianity. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the people who grew up Catholic and then become evangelical, the people who grew up evangelical and then become Eastern Orthodox, the people who grew up, you know, youth group kids and then become Calvinists. I I, I think it really is one of those things where when you encounter new ideas, uh, yeah, I I think the cage stage is not a bad idea. (laughs) Um, And actually, Michael, I will say that, I mean, I have encountered Methodists who probably should take some time to digest um, (laughs) before they start talking. Uh, But, I mean, these tend to be people who grew up in very politically conservative evangelical churches and then become, you know, very, very liberal Uh, United Methodist type Methodists. and then okay, you know that's they, another kind of cage stage. Yeah, I, I didn't mean well, yeah, I yeah. didn't mean to suggest to our Methodist listeners that you're also not pompous and aggravating. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry. 
Right. So I mean, my 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 inclination, and I think uh, I think it plays nicely with what Tilak is doing here because seminary should be a a process of conversion in a very, very real sense, right? It is a movement from one way of existing within the faith to taking on another role, existing in another mode. And I, I think David's right that, I mean, you know, there is a period there where you are in theological puberty and, you know, you, you shouldn't be singing. Mm-hmm. I mean, can we say that something and something analogous um, has been the case or at least was perceived to be the case in terms of um, the, you know, emerging movement? Um, if you hadn't said it, I would have, David. Okay. Okay. <laughs> see, see, you know, in in some ways, because I was irritated in a lot of cases, uh, uh-huh. I would say, oh yeah, they're definitely going through theological puberty, like as a movement. Um, but at the same time, am I being dismissive because you know because, because you're I, a Calvinist? I, yes, because I read it that way. <laughs> is my cage staged? Is my cage grating against theirs? Right. Well, I, and I, I will say, and I, now I actually will use somebody by name, um, Carla, our, our friend who, she was on this show years ago to talk about Edmund Spencer, and she, she's she been on the, the feminist show a few times. She she is emergent. She grew up fundamentalist, and yet I have never noticed any kind of cage stage in her. She's She, she was always gracious about it, uh, even when we disagree. So I, I have to I have to say this is not a universal thing. I think there are personality types, uh, you know, who, who can go, go through this conversion process without making themselves noxious to those around them. Uh, mm-hmm. And God bless those people. <laughs> I think there are also movements, though, who regard the kind of um, aggression and zeal that the that the, the this cage stage or this theological puberty embodies that they were that they would regard it that they regard it as a virtue. And yeah. So, yeah. and yeah. so not necessarily something to be grown past. Well, this is this is one of the aggravating things about the new atheism. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the new atheism, you know, it's it's a lot of people who grew up in in conservative religious homes who suddenly I I heard an interview on the radio with a local singer-songwriter and he he's an atheist. He went to North Central University, which is the the uh the the Pentecostal school in downtown Minneapolis. And he said he stopped being a Christian because he had to do a project on First Corinthians 11, and he realized that scholars don't agree with uh, about what it says. And, and to me, that's huh. like that—that's that, absurd, right? That—that is—that is a bizarre reason to become an atheist. Yeah. But it, it, it also—it also explains the degree to which fundamentalism of one stripe begets fundamentalism of another stripe. And so, when you convert out of mm-hmm. fundamentalism, you're—you're you're naturally going to be inclined to a fundamentalism of a different sort because it's—it's it's right. just you know you, you, that—that's the the kind of. I hate to use the term worldview you have is, is this very black and white thing. And so I think that's what's aggravating about some new atheists. Uh, again, not all atheists are like that. Not even all atheists who, who would, would associate themselves with that movement. But I, I think that the zeal of the convert is also the zeal of the unconvert. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if I, if I can shift it over into sort of neo-Aristotelian language, I mean, if, if you are educated with a disposition towards, you know, and I'm going to use a catchphrase here that's probably going to get me in trouble, but transforming the culture, then when you <laughs> switch to a different tradition, odds are you're still going to think of yourself as bearing the 
burden of transforming the culture just in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably going to get me in trouble because I'm pretty sure someone used that in our convocation service two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, also people like Howard Wass and Brueggemann and N.T. Wright are fairly sanguine about the idea of Christians being lights on the hill and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not that transforming the culture is something that we're not supposed to be doing. It's just that, yeah, this, the, the sanguinity with which you approach that that task as something that you're going to be accomplishing you yourself. Right. It's a spiritual now. pride. It, it's, 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 it's the right. difference between, to, to use H. Richard Niebuhr's terms, it's the difference between Christ transforming culture and me transforming <laughs> culture. I mean, th- okay. those right, are two very right. different things. Or even yeah. if you want to leave Christ out of it, even the church transforming culture is a very different thing from me transforming culture. Right, right. I mean, and and also, I mean, to think of yourself as civilizing the savages is, generally speaking, an obnoxious way to exist in the world. Yeah, whoever you think the savages are. (laughs) Oh, sure, sure. I mean, whether they live in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or whether they live in southern Indiana, it's probably (laughs) not your job as an individual to civilize the savages. General suburbs. And and to go to to go back to the Calvinism question that 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 pushed this all off, I think it is particularly aggravating in Calvinism because the the central tenets of Calvinism ought to teach you extreme humility. (laughs) And and instead so often they teach you extreme pride. And this is this is one of the weird inner contradictions of Calvinism. I'm I'm a bad Calvinist as as anybody who's listened to this show for more than a few episodes knows. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a Calvinist, but not compared to David and not compared to some of our Calvinist listeners. Um, but like the, the central thing about Calvinism is this total depravity and the fact that if you are elect, it has nothing to do with you. You did nothing to deserve this. You did nothing to justify it. Everything, everything is this imputed righteousness. And, and so, the fact that it so often leads to self-righteousness, the fact that almost every time there's been a society ruled by Calvinists, it's turned out terribly. <laughs> th- th- there's, there's a weird inner contradiction, not that disproves Calvinism, but that maybe suggests that, that Calvinism needs to be inward rather than outward. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully, yeah. hopefully nobody's too mad at me about that. Yeah. Well, you remind me of a, of a quote from John Newton, who um, I think most people will agree was um, not a bad Calvinist and also a nice man. <laughs> well, eventually a nice man. Uh, eventually. After eventually. the slave trading stuff. <laughs> well, because of the whole, you know, amazing grace thing. Um, I, and and I'm, I'm going to botch this, but uh, he he... he wrote, I believe, in a letter that, you know, those who believe the way he did about uh, depravity and about election should should have infinite patience with those who don't see things the way they do because they had absolutely, you know, because they would regard it as a tenet of their belief that they had nothing to do with the fact that they ended up believing it. Absolutely. And, and th- so, that is good Calvinism. And I'm like, thank you, John Newton. 
<laughs> he's like, you know, why why is it that, you know, you're a Calvinist right up until you get into an argument, until you start assuming that you're a Pelagian who can win over the other guy by the superiority of your rationality. Or, for that matter, that you're saved because you hold the right systematic theology. Yeah. Yep. I, you know, I, I've, I've said this to a number of friends that, you know, do I have to explain how the gospel works yeah. in the Christ, same way Christ that you do that. You don't do in that. order for me to be, in order for me believing it to still save me? Mm-hmm. Well, you believing anyway. it doesn't save you. That that's my point. You're 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 saved by just a complete divine act, right. not because you, you believe you the right the things. Com- yeah, you have the capacity to believe because God gave you that capacity. Right. Yeah, but 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 even then, you know, is is, is you know is you know the fact that I believe it. Do I do I have to understand how it works in precisely the same way as someone else in order for that belief in it to be legit? I like, sure I sure know. hope not, because nobody no, <laughs> nobody has the same the same exact systematic theology as anybody else. Hmm. No. Yeah. Well, we sure can try," <laughs> said the ugly Calvinist inside me. So, um, yeah, I, I, we better stop talking about Calvinism, or this is just going to be a completely different kind of show. <laughs> um, something that I wanted to hash out, and I'm going to pitch this one at you, Nathan, because I suspect you're going to be a better reader of it than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, in chapter seven, Tilika discusses critical approaches to the Bible. And in mm-hmm. particular, the way that the pious are frequently suspicious of that. And he, this is, the, this is the, his quote, in uh, a quote from that chapter. Faith makes sense only as unconditioned faith because it has to do with our eternal destiny. It is impossible that it could be dependent upon and conditioned by the changing results of historical investigation or of scientific fashion. Now, when I read that, it looked to me like Tilica was trying to divorce the Jesus of faith and the Jesus of history, which are, they're not his terms, but, you know, I, I'm, they seem to work in this particular moment. Mm-hmm. And that notion bothers me, but maybe I'm misreading him. Well, I don't think you're misreading him, but I do think we need to situate him historically. So, I mean, okay. in... German Protestantism in 1959, this was the air that they breathed, right? Okay. In a way that for American evangelicalism, it's just not, right? Uh, I mean, you know, if you listen to uh, our counterparts, you know, who do more sort of theologically liberal podcasting, you know, I mean, they tend to assume this fairly readily. If, Mm -hmm. If you think about within that environment, this becomes a more pressing question. Now, in our circles, uh, you know, the Honestly, the work of N.T. Wright, uh, you know, which, of course, I have the highest respect for, has problematized this distinction mm-hmm. uh, in, in some ways that I find very fascinating, uh, but that just wouldn't have been in the atmosphere in Germany in 1959. Mm-hmm. So I would say that in his moment, that really is a question that is pressing on the parish preacher, right? Uh, how do you deal with the scholarly consensus about, you know, the separation between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith, and how do you bring that to your parishioners and bring them into a capacity to understand that division? 
Now, you know, what people like Richard Hayes and N.T. Wright have done for American Christianity to an, to an extent that wasn't intelligible, you know, 56 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, is they've said, okay, maybe that distinction itself we accepted too readily. Maybe we need to render that a problematic rather than an assumption. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, it, it's one of those things where I realized I didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> but it, 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 it's it, it, it's because of my own historicizing impulse. Mm-hmm. I want to say that you know, uh, you know, kind of like you know, I mean, does the distinction between Homo usia and Homoi usia really matter that much to a 21st century evangelical? Probably not. <laughs> you know, right. it's very very important. You know, in the first six centuries of Christianity, it's become less of an issue now. I'd say this is a similar sort of dilemma. Okay. So so I'm not I'm not necessarily misreading him when I see that lurking there. No, and again, just think okay. of this as a problem that he had to solve that okay. because of the work like because of the work of scholars like N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and other scholars who rhyme with white uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's just not as pressing a problem for us now. Okay, I, I, I should, I, I should recognize that that's there, but not necessarily emote as if Tilika is li- li- living in the same culture that I am and could go check out the resurrection of the Son of sure, God. Sure, sure. You know, honestly, I think that you know, a, <laughs> I, I think we, I think we could learn by analogy here, though. I was going to say, know, that, what, what's the, what's the similar yeah, I mean, issue for us. Yeah, I mean some some of the issues that I find interesting in our own moment is, you know, the the first century particularity of some of the language in the Bible, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, I'm far more interested in, okay, you know, how do we imagine for instance, uh, you know, God as father in a culture where, you know, we have a a very very high percentage of you know single parent families right how do we imagine you know the kingdom of god when we've been living in a and ostensibly a republic for 220 years mm-hmm. you know how do we you know how do we encounter those sorts of linguistic problems i think that's the sort of thing that we can learn from this investigation cool i guess back on to the back onto the rails then mm-hmm. um Mm, I'll pitch this one at you, Michael, because it seems like something in your wheelhouse, just as the last question was in Nathan's. Um, Chapters 8 to 10 sketch out what Tilika treats as a kind of struggle between faith and theology. In fact, and and I I put down the book at this point and kind of stared at the ceiling for a while. Um, (laughs) And I got so excited by that part. Yeah. (laughs) My toe started tapping. He claims that, quote, every theological idea which makes an impression upon you must be regarded as a challenge to your faith, unquote. Praise Jesus. Yes, and that struck me as the kind of thing that you might say, and apparently the kind of thing that Nathan might say, too. So I will ask you to explain what he is talking about in these chapters. I I don't want to speak for Thielica. I've been calling him Thielica all episode. I'm sorry to our German-speaking listeners. It's a hideous. It's a hideous language, though. Just, just hideous. That's um, all francophile. Well, um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to claim to speak for him, but I, you know what I got out of this is that we have a dialectic going on, and and mm-hmm. and I would expect that to be kind of what he would say, given 
that he's coming out of Germany in the middle of the 20th century. And even if he disagreed with Bart about some things, the the Bardian shadow over German theology in the middle of the 20th century is pretty heavy. If oh, yeah. shadows can be heavy, I think I mixed my metaphors. Uh, the mil- it's a, it, it, it sounded Miltonic. Keep rolling with it. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea here is you have these two poles, both of which are probably necessary, but which are, uh, I won't say contradiction, but let's say tension. Um, between the two. So you have practical faith, that naive faith we've been talking about that the the people back home hold, which, I mean, really in some ways is the engine of the church. It's it's what's kept it alive for for 20 centuries. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, you have the the theology you learn at uh, at seminary, which is, uh, you know, the thing that allows faith to adapt to the times it's it's what and it's what makes faith go deeper and so both of those things are necessary but the one always risks strangling out the other so the folks back home perhaps are so uninterested in theology that uh that their faith becomes what christian smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism Mm-hmm. Well, that's a sort of faith, but it's not a faith that's grounded in any kind of historical theology, and that's a problem. On the other hand, uh, a phenomenon I think everybody's familiar with is people who go to seminary or go to Christian college, and they're they're given so much theology in an academic environment that they can only approach it academically, and we're back to that trilling essay and staring into the abyss and having it say, aren't I interesting? Instead of having it, you know, <laughs> do something to your life, it, instead of, it becomes wholly intellectual and nothing practical. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is every bit of theology you get is going to push you further toward that side. And every, I don't, I don't know if you get practical faith, but the more practical faith you have, the more you're going to pull back in the other direction. And and the trick here is to be like a tightrope walker uh, who, who yeah. manages to have just enough of both of them to stay upright. And and it's going to be forever a tension. There's no, you know, Bart following Kierkegaard is going to tell you there's no synthesis. There's no Hegelian moving forward about this where, where you've, you've solved the problem, even if there's another problem beyond that. This is an un- unsolvable problem. These two things not just will be, but must be forever in tension for it to work. And that means that uh, the Christian life is a anxiety producing thing, but it's a beneficial anxiety. It's the sort of anxiety that pushes you further both into practical faith and into theological speculation. Right. It's an anxiety that's fitting for living in the time between the times. Right. There's a, there's a good Calvinist idea. I, I guess would medieval New, Catholic. I, I would say New Testament. I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is there a difference? <laughs> nice. Slow clap. Slow clap. Awesome. Does that not appeal to you, David? Uh, what? That dial, the dialectical uh, interaction I just described. No, no, no. Absolutely, and and uh, I mean, it 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 appeals to me. Uh, probably the thing that. Um, the thing that he brought out most was the degree to which there is a tension in that. Um, I, I tend to be one who tries to argue for harmony. Um, you know, I, you know, th- thank God I'm in a church where I don't have to have this argument a lot, but I have been in churches before where the conversation consisted of, here's a defense of why we should be curious at all. So that, um, you know, I, I've tended to say, you know, here's why having some kind of theological, dogmatic, confessional 
engagement will enrich the boots on the ground piety that is, you know, energized by what Tilika calls the the instinct of the children of God. Um, you know, I you know, I, I've t- I've t- I've tended to focus on the harmony, but in these chapters, it um, especially when he talks about the ways that dogmatic systems can have almost a, a siren-like appeal in their um, in their beauty, in their symmetry, in their um, that, that that you could you you can confuse the the system with the thing itself and say, aha, because I now. I can now articulate these tenets and I can now make these arguments and fit these pieces together. Um, I have, I have mastered what the word of God has to tell me. And so, so that every time I'm reading theology and I'm going, yeah, this is really good. At that point, I need to be watching my soul and saying, don't get carried away. Don't confuse this with the real thing. And one thing I like about what Tilika says there is we're all inclined to do that with some theologians, right? Yes. So if if you're if you're generally conservative, when you read Paul Tillich, however much Tillich appeals to you, you have to say, okay, well, what's what's he what's he doing here that puts me in danger? And what mm. what um, what Tillich says is, oh, you have to do this with every theologian, <laughs> not yeah, not right, just the ones right. who make you uneasy. In fact, the ones that make you feel good may be the ones that you need to be most aware of that tension. Yeah. I would, yeah. instead of, you know, good existentialist, I'm a much better existentialist than I am a Calvinist, which may be why I'm a bad Calvinist. Um, <laughs> har- harmony is, is not what I would shoot for. I would say what you're shooting for is beautiful dissonance. Hmm. So if, D- David, if you're looking for Haydn, I'm looking for, I don't know, Messian or somebody like that. <laughs> so, what, Just to prove I that I can't be... pronounce French names any better than German names. Awesome. Whereas I tend to be, okay, in spite of the fact that I'm reformed, I'm also very medieval in the way I react aesthetically mm-hmm. to to ideas, and and I tend to want to find, I tend to want to find harmony. I tend to want to find um, ways of looking at different kinds of ideas and saying, okay, and these fit together elegantly in this way, and that's very satisfying, you know. And, you know, and, and I, I, you know, gut level deep down expect that the ultimate truth, you know, which, which I apprehend when I behold the beatific vision, see there, I'm very medieval, um, will be that kind of beautiful harmony. And so I'm very susceptible of feeling like I'm seeing that vision early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would say that harmony, if it's ever going to come, is going to come in the next world. Right. But, I, I mean, again, it's not like I'm seeing this in a non-theological way and you're seeing it in a theological – we're both reading this theologically, which right. means we we both need to be aware that in some sense we're falsifying actual practical life. Mm-hmm. But now I'm talking like Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to toss in here, Nathan? Uh, only that, you know, when I talk to students who do think that they're going to seminary, what the advice I always give them is, if you don't spend your seminary years on the edge of atheism, you're not doing it right. And if you don't get there, if you don't get there during your seminary years, you will during your first 10 years of ministry. Uh. So better seminary. 
Yeah, while you're surrounded by the faithful and you have people to talk to and you're not isolated and worrying about whether you can feed your kids. Yeah, plan on having your heart attack in the hospital. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I give similar advice to people going to grad school, even in English, which is, you know, if if at the end of your first semester you're not wondering why you did such a stupid thing, you probably haven't been paying close enough attention. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Uh, I'm, I, I suppose we should uh, be circling towards the end. I just have a couple more questions mm-hmm. um, for Nathan. And this, this part I really enjoyed as well. Um, I, 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 this was another stare at the ceiling moment for me. <laughs> and one of the things that hit me hardest in this book was Tilika's claim. And, you know, may, maybe this is, you know, this is how I would sum it up. Maybe you'd sum it up differently. Tilika's claim that the difference between a sacred and a diabolical theology is whether you're using the grammatical second or third person. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's fair? Well, first of all, I wouldn't take that uh, too literally. In other words, every <laughs> theology book doesn't have to be Augustine's Confessions. Um, <laughs> or the beginning of the Monologion. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, you know, I'm I'm reminded of, you know, one of my favorite one-liners from Merrill Westfall. You know, he he famously said, you know, nobody prays to the ground of being. Mm. <laughs> so uh, it, it is one of those things where, I mean, I, I would say that this encourages a a little exercise, if you will, a spiritual discipline of interrogating the theology that you are teaching in terms of can you pray it? Uh, when you pray, do you contradict what you say theologically? Uh, and if you do, that doesn't necessarily mean that your prayers are right. It might mean that you're not praying very well. But at mm. the very least, be aware of the contradiction. Mm. So when when he talks about you, uh, when he talks about second and third person, and mm-hmm. and, and being. Uh, the, I, I guess the, the the dominant flavor or the dominant perspective of a theology. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, do you see that as being as being insightful? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that you know one of the things. I, I, again, I mean, one of the things I'm most grateful for in my own seminary years uh, is that I did get together with a group of fellow students to pray three mornings a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was one of those things that you know, first of all, kept me grounded and also gave me a a small community for, you know, mutual encouragement, but it also did. And, you know, I, I don't even think I was thinking about Telica when I was doing this, but it did encourage me to think about, okay, you know, this, for instance, systematic theology that I'm reading, what parts of it do I have to cross my fingers about when I actually speak a prayer? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if I would, you know, Make the distinction make the distinction one between sacred and diabolical, but I would say theology that makes sense versus theology that is trying to make sense mm. it, it reminds me a little bit of the moment in in mere Christianity in which uh, Lewis makes an argument yay for it makes an argument for the Trinity on the basis of what happens to an ordinary Christian when the ordinary Christian prays mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the, and the way the ordinary Christian, uh, prays. And it, 
you know, as I, as I was reading this particular section, I, I thought about that and thought about, okay, that, that's, that's actually a, a kind of argument for the Trinity is to say it comports with, it comports with the way we ought to be, um, relating to the root of our spiritual life. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, ju- just to, you know, since we were talking about Calvinists earlier, just to tweak the noses of our Calvinist listeners and my co-hosts, of course, uh, you know, I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, very early on made me question the doctrine of divine impassibility, right? You know, when I pray the Psalms, for instance, and I say, you know, behold, God, you know, see what's happening to me, see the wicked surrounding me, you know, do I pray that in the hopes that, you know, God is impassable and won't actually respond at all? Or do I pray, you know, with the hope that, you know, the Psalms are a truthful mode of speech and that they can actually incite God to respond? Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, I came to that conclusion because I read Alfred Nord White, North Whitehead. Sorry, Trip Fuller. Uh, but it is because, you know, when I was encouraged in seminary to pray the Psalms, you know, to Mm. speak those prayers is to enter into a certain kind of narrative involving God and humanity. Uh, Mm. And, you know, trying to live inside of that narrative means that certain kinds of systematic theologies become more intelligible than others. The nice thing about the Bible is that it tends to confound all of our theologies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, we maybe we can take that one up another day, huh? <laughs> yeah, we're too close to the end for that. Well, there's, we are, there, we there, are. there's you know, it goes back to what I was just saying. That, that, that's the tension I'm talking about. Right. Oh, every, yeah, every yeah. time, every time you think you've come to a conclusion, you realize, oh, I haven't solved anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like I've told you guys before, and our listeners, I mean, this is why Walter Brueggemann perpetually appeals to me because his central tenet in his theology is the inherent plurality of biblical revelation. Hmm. In other words, that, you know, whenever you settle into a way of thinking about God, whether that's a process way or whether that's a classical theist way, something in the text of the Bible is going to disrupt that. Right. Hmm. Well, and I I would, uh, I would affirm at least in principle, um, your your observations by saying if if you, if you take the tenets of your confession and trace them out and your conclusion is and this is why I don't pray you yeah. just did it you just did it wrong yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> or you know or and this is why I don't and this is why it's pointless to evangelize or and this is why I don't have to worry about being godly mm-hmm. and so forth you know if if you ever you know, find yourself working out the tenets of your theology and your final, you know, your final conclusion is, and this is why I don't have to obey this particular command of Scripture, you just did it wrong. Or, or, yeah. I mean, or for that matter, this is why I'm ignoring this uh, practice that has gone on in the church for 2,000 years. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. at, at a certain point, you have to say, oh, I'm not wiser than everybody who's come before me. Right. Yeah. 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 In, in spite of the fact that Psalm 119 can say that. 
<laughs> every 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 teacher's least favorite song, <laughs> and every freshman's favorite. For I and, am and wiser than go, all my teachers. Yes, and listeners, go back and listen to our Psalm one nineteen episode. I think we had a good deal of fun with that one. Yeah, don't don't become a sophomoric convert to Psalm one nineteen. That's that's that would just be insane. Right. Or if you're inclined <laughs> to dismiss Psalm one nineteen, let it disturb you. Yes. <laughs> I don't mean. Well, any final thoughts that we have about this text? And and would you teach it, Michael? I don't know if I would teach it um, because I don't teach theology. I would certainly recommend it to anybody going to seminary. I uh, My final thought is a joke. This is one of my favorite theological jokes. I had to pull it up because I can't remember it. <laughs> and Jesus said to the German theologians, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the actualization of the potential God-man relationship, which is divine intended truth about every man, the kerygma manifest in conflict at the cutting edge of the humanizing process, the paradigm of human perfection. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> I think that about sums it up. <laughs> David, that is uh, t- two two weeks in a row that I've made you laugh like that. It makes me happy. <laughs> okay, that one was awesome. And you're gonna have to you either forward me the link or include it in the show notes because I I'll am probably it in the show some notes, please. <laughs> yes, yes, listeners, if you want to add this one to your repertoire, um, yeah, you need to commit that one to memory, Nathan. I, I have actually, uh, you know, since we revisited this book, I'm actually thinking about trying to procure some uh, club funds, actually, for the Emanuel College Christian Humanists, which is the philosophy club that I sponsor, to give copies to the officers, mm. because seeing them, you know, sort of emerging into a dialectical mode of thought and going through their own intellectual puberty uh, just kind of occurs to me that this might be a... Uh, this might be some good medicine. Awesome. Well, I, I I don't know I don't know if I'll ever have the occasion to uh, to teach it in terms of the disciplines that that I do, but you know I, I do plan like Michael to recommend it to uh, to students not only who are going off to seminary, but I would recommend it to I would recommend it to Christian students who are going off to a graduate school in the the, in the humanities of, of, of pretty much any kind, because, you know, I think you guys were right at the beginning of the semester that the kind of, you know, awkward, you know, f- you know, flame the ignorant stage uh, that, that, you know, we go through when as we're being initiated into, um, you know, this or that intellectual craft, um, you know, so, someone someone needs some kind of leash to pull them back in that moment, and this 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 little exercise, I I hope could do that function. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, all we have time for to say about the little uh, exercise for young theologians by Helmut Tilica. Um, uh, I encourage you to go out and read it, dear listeners. I, I hope we've piqued your interest in that. Make this make this part of your. Uh, your theological repertoire. What have we got going on next week? And who's hosting? I am, and we're doing ah. ki- kind of a sequel to our Mark Hurd episode from last summer. We're going to discuss another Christian rock album that was very important to me as a teenager. Uh, this case, Daniel Amos's 
1991 album Calhoun, which is one of the weirdest albums ever to be found in Christian bookstores. So I'll uh, post to the Facebook page when this episode goes up. I'll post a, a link to a YouTube collection of videos that represents the album. Um, so our listeners, if they are not already familiar with it, can become familiar with it. Hmm. Is, is this your revenge for us doing Old English while you were gone? I don't. I think you guys. Have you, <laughs> I, I sent you guys the links yesterday. Have you listened to it yet? No, I've not. I think you will uh, find a lot to like in it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I, I I know I was initially I was initially a little bit trepidation about trepidatious about the Mark Hurd episode, but I ended up having a lot of fun with it. Even well, and, and you're going to get to talk say, about fascism but... and eschatology and all sorts of crazy stuff. Man. Well, tune in next week, listeners, for fascism and eschatology and 90s Christian rock. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I wish you all grand weeks, dear listeners. Uh, I'm David Grubbs. Uh, on behalf of uh, Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, who wish you farewell as well. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show in the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern, for now, is Zach Schmidt. And I will leave you all with great advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs> <laughs>